At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by AARP. 16 years from today, Greg Gerstner will finally land the perfect cannonball. Epic Splash. Unsuspecting Friends. A work of art only possible because Greg is already meeting all these same people at AARP volunteer and community events that keep him active and involved and help make sure his happiness lives as long as he does. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org local. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Golf Channel Podcast with Rex and Lav. We are officially in the dead zone on the calendar, smack dab between Christmas and New Year's Day. Inarguably, Rex, the most depressing stretch of the entire year. Just curious, how are you getting over your post-Christmas blues? It's not. Is it the most depressing stretch? I was going to start with a lot more energy. I was going to hit you with a very happy new year. How was Christmas? Did you enjoy the family? And you're going to go with most depressing stretch. Well, I'm going to guess it's the most depressing stretch for you because you killed Christmas about five hours after the kids opened the presents, which sounds to me like the most insane thing you could possibly do. It sounds psychotic that you break down Christmas on Christmas Day. Uh, It was definitely less than five hours. Take the under on that. Christmas Christmas was over. Christmas was over at 9 a.m. Presents were over. I headed to the Blackstone. Uh, to do our Christmas breakfast. And then everyone was out of the house. I believe it was 10, 12 a.m. Eastern time, at which point I began taking down some of the outside decorations. And we officially closed the books on Christmas. That uh, is about, about mid-morning right there. on December 26th. We had the cleaners come in. The house looks great. But literally, there is no semblance of Christmas sure. that has been left over. Chris, uh, actually, Rex, I was, I was wondering, after last year's fiasco... Uh, I think I think every listener of the pod is curious. What did Bunkmate, who who by the way is your wife? There has been some confusion online on YouTube about who Bunk or Bunkmate actually is. It is your wife, Dion. What did she get you for Christmas as a refresher for those who are listening? Last year, Rex wanted a Blackstone griddle uh, for his outside patio, but instead he got yet another TV this time for his bedroom, even though he does not watch TV in bed. Uh, she got him a, a, a bedroom TV. Just curious. What'd you get this year? Uh, this year I got a tie from my son, Cole. Thanks Cole. It's a very nice tie that I'll never wear. Uh, and then I also got like a roll cart. This is kind of cool. Like a roll cart for the Blackstone, for the smoker, everything on the outside. It's like, you know, like you have a kitchen area, so you, you probably don't fall into this, but like, I don't have the kitchen area you do. However, I have all my things together. So it's just kind of a roll cart where you would put, like I made breakfast yesterday on the Blackstone for my son's 23rd birthday. It's not easy having a birthday on the 26th, by the way, which is why I probably don't break down Christmas on the 25th. But uh, so it was nice having all that stuff there. And if you do like anything, anything that's complicated, like when, when I do Mongolian barbecue or, or hibachi or anything like that, like you have to have everything pre-positioned. And so it's nice. That's, that's what I got from Bunk. Would you like to know what I got her? Please. 
Well, because only because this got brought up, I think, last week in the podcast, and someone correctly pointed out that it's going to be a trip to Iceland. But the way I did it, you can't really wrap up a trip to Iceland. So the way I did it is I bought a like a Iceland tourism guidebook or, you know, just a, like a guidebook and then like a fluffy, warm hat and just put it in a box and let her figure it out. Wow. They say they say romance is dead. Yeah, there it is. I just no. don't believe it. We'll do it. We'll you, well, you just showed me uh, pickleball shoes, that, which look a lot like tennis shoes. Yeah, I believe they're tennis shoes. They're Nike tennis shoes that I'll be using for pickleball. Uh, despite not having lost uh, more than three times in my life, things have been going sour. I've got some shoulder issues. I, I got a little rotator cuff pain. Elbows, elbows bother me. Uh, so I'm hoping these shoes yeah, get me sure. on the right track. Also got a countertop fryer, another gadget that, that cool. I'll be using. Uh, as well as a vac sealer. Did not have a vac sealer previously. Uh, wow. So I'm very excited about all that. We'll, we'll get into the full Christmas uh, edition at the end of the pod. Also want to give a quick shout out to Edward Creighton 2638 on YouTube in a cesspool of negative YouTube comments. Our friend Edward is a guiding light. He's always positive. He's always complimentary. We do appreciate you, sir. Okay, so folks, this is the end of the year recap show. So we're going to be counting down the top five newsmakers of the year. Rex, and I, Rex, you and I huddled for about three text messages Pre-pod. this morning, but it does seem pretty obvious. We'll count these down from five to one. For for the number five newsmaker of the year of our Lord 2023, to me, it's the, it's the governing bodies. And more specifically, the rollback that was announced late this fall. I think you can take the governing bodies, Rex, as a newsmaker two different ways. One I think it's pretty clear that they're not bending over backwards to accommodate the live guys in the major championships, but more recently the decision to roll back the golf ball beginning in 2028 for the elite player and in 2030 for hacks like you and me. What effect do you think the governing bodies had this year? No, I think they had a huge effect. I think the rollback was a little muted because of everything else that's going on. It's worth pointing out that we're, we're taping this pod on the 27th of our Lord and it's important that we're clinging, like our fingers are, are, are clung to the cliff, trying to hold on to see what's going to happen before the end of the year. As we all remember, December 31st is, of course, the deadline between the PGA Tour and Saudi Arabia's public investment fund to come up with some sort of agreement between the two. I would not expect news before the 31st, but uh, if, the, if, it is da- if it is, this could be a dated podcast very, very quickly, so, just so everyone knows. Also, before we get started on number five, I also did a, uh, what I call an ARV and also receiving votes. I'm going to go with Tiger Woods. We sort of touched on him last week. Just first time he's never been a newsmaker, probably. It's the first time probably since we started these silly things, I think, that he hasn't been a newsmaker. So I thought that that was important to point out. And look, it was nothing he did on the golf course that was particularly interesting or newsworthy. It's everything that happened off the golf course. And really, he did everything off the golf course, literally behind closed doors as a member of the policy board. I, I would also want to point out LACC, which, you know, I think both of us had mixed feelings. I think it was a a very unique U.S. Open venue for a lot of different reasons, some good, some bad. Cool golf course. Being inside a major city was really cool. It did not have a major championship field. It felt more like a country club golf course. I think the USGA can probably adjust that going forward. And then my final ARV is uh, University of Georgia loses in the SEC championship game. Do you want to comment on any of those before I finally? No? No, let's move on. Let's move on immediately. Immediately. Uh, We're going to move on. Uh, yeah, I think the, the governing bodies, I think you touched on it perfectly. They're not going to go out of their way to create a pathway for the live players to play in their major championships. I, I think once essentially the live players ran into, let's call it that world ranking roadblock, 
and the world ranking sort of drew the line and said, look, we are not getting world ranking points as constituted right now. They didn't say that you're never going to get them. Like there's room for negotiations and some tinkering that could change that could give them points. But if that roadway is, is good and narrow and good and blocked off, then the only alternative would be for the major championship bodies. Let's say Augusta national to decide, okay, we're going to give spots to the top four points getters on last year's live golf list. They're not doing that. And it doesn't look like they have any interest in doing that anytime soon. So that is one part of the equation. It's the rollback though, that I keep going back to, because we talked about it. It feels like for a decade. Now we've been talking about it. We've been playing cat and mouse with it. it there's been rumors that it could happen. They, they actually proposed sort of a bifurcated plan that would roll back the golf ball for the elite players and not for us. That didn't work for everyone. So what we ended up with is just sort of this blanket rollback that will be instituted for us by 2030, which is kind of hard to wrap our head around. And I think that's why it was muted a little bit because it's not something we have to deal with on January 1st. I think had they said that, okay, this is going into effect next year, it would have been a much different reaction, especially from players like you and I, the hacks, where if you tell me you're taking my golf ball from me, I'm not going to be happy. I look for a golf ball as a prop. Couldn't see any. (laughs) I'm not going to be happy, but 2030 is so, I mean, it's, it's, I'm, I'm an elder gentleman. I don't even know if I'm going to be playing golf in 2030. So it's hard. There were some members at my club who were even more elder gentlemen than I am, who were all up at arms and angry about it. And I'm just shaking my head like, you guys don't need to worry about it. It's fine. You won't be playing golf by 2030. Don't worry about it. And if you are, then play whatever golf ball you want. Where it's going to impact is at the highest level. But even that is a few years away. It's That's exactly right. It is a few years away. And I think it's important to underscore the point that there was the option that they could have had bifurcation at the elite level, where if you get to the PGA Tour, you get to the LPGA Tour, you get to the Corn Ferry, those players would essentially be playing a rollback golf ball, not dissimilar to what you see in baseball with the wood bats at the MLB level and the aluminum bats in the at the college level. It would be very similar to that, and yet there was immense pushback and blowback from the PGA Tour community. The PGA Tour did not support it. They were never going to support it, and they they were so vociferous, Rex, Ooh, in their good one, in their in their support to not have a bifurcated scenario that it it just was it was not feasible for the governing bodies to continue that way. And so when you when you mention now that 2028 is going to be the implementation, at least at the elite level, keep in mind the USJ and the RNA are fully expecting that the players who hit it. 325 right now are going to continue to hit it 325 in 2028. They will be able to make up any loss in distance with speed training, with swing optimization, with fitness. So they're basically just making sure they, they, they have a stake in the ground, right? Where this doesn't get to a point where in 5, 10, 15 years, guys are now averaging 340, 350, 360, whatever the case may be. They're essentially just kind of hitting pause before they figure out, I think, a more permanent solution. You mentioned the impact for folks like you and me. Like, are, are, We are not going to see any greater difference than one to four yards. And quite frankly, if I hit it 260 right now, I'm not going to be able to notice a difference between 257. You who hits it, let's say, 225 with your purest, uh, most nuttiest strike uh, is certainly not going to notice a difference if it somehow goes 224, this doesn't feel Rex like the long-term solution. The long-term solution, of course, is the driver head. And the USGA and the RNA said they will continue to look at the driver head. 
They want to make center strikes important again. Instead, the drives have become too forgiving. That's really what the problem is. This is kind of a short-term solution. Well, and I do think it's important. And again, this is very convoluted. It's it's very in-depth and it's a long ways away. So for all of those reasons, this one is number five on our newsmaker list. However, speaking from the other side, I've talked to people on the other side of this. Obviously, the manufacturers, the PGA Tour, they were all against this and they questioned the data that the USGA and the RNA used. I mean, specifically, they used the PGA Tours data and the PGA Tour will be the first one to tell you that's not the way that data is supposed to be used. That data is created, the, the radar data as I'm talking about, for TV, for graphics, for us to be able to say, oh, he, this is his spin and this is his launch angle and it's not scientific. This isn't sitting in a, li- in a lab in a sterile atmosphere getting the proper results every single time. So that's where the first problem comes into play. And the second problem that comes into play, and look, I heard this a lot from people inside the game. We're taking the USGA and the RNA's word for this. And there's no reason not to believe that that 5% or the five yards or, or whatever the number is going to end up being, but we still have to see it. Like, I'm still curious. I'm, I'm going to love to be able to do the first experiment to walk out on a golf course with a tour player and hand him the dial back golf ball and see him play it and actually see the difference and see that, okay, it doesn't impact the driver by more than I don't know, five yards if you're one of the longer players. And it doesn't impact the five iron at all. I think it's important going forward that we understand that we don't know exactly what's going to happen. There's a lot of data and there's some questions if it's the correct data. Number four, newsmaker Rex is big, bad Brooks Kepka, the newly minted PGA champion, outlasted Victor Hovland, who hid in the fairway bunker on the 16th hole to doom his chances, and apparently Michael Block uh, to win... At Oak Hill as well. Uh, to me, Rex Brooks's victory was significant for two reasons. One, it made him the winningest major champion of the post-Tiger era, more than JT, more than Spieth, and even more than Roy McIlroy, who remains stuck on four major championships. The PJ win at Oak Hill moved Brooks to five major championships overall. So that was obviously significant. But secondly, I think it really validated live golf. There was so much talk. There was so much conjecture. There was so many conspiracy theories that players who moved to live golf would no longer be able to compete and win major championships. We saw that be debunked somewhat at the Masters where Brooks held the 54-hole lead before kicking away on Sunday. But he and Phil Mickelson of Live Golf uh, both tied for second at Augusta National. A month later, Brooks wins at Oak Hill. Why was Brooks in your opinion, number four on this list. Why was he such a big newsmaker in 2023? Did we not do Georgia losing in the SEC championship game? We're moving on. All right, moving on to Brooks. That's fine. I'm good with it. Uh, I'm going to say he should be higher than four, but it was a crazy year. So I agree with him being fourth, only because from a storytelling standpoint, I find Brooks fascinating. And look, he can be aloof and difficult with the press sometimes, and he's not very open all the time. But knowing what we know now about his move to live golf, and we know that now only from the Netflix special, he did it essentially because he thought he was washed and he needed a payday. And, you know, he lives in a very, very expensive home and he has things to pay for. Need a payday, wanted a payday. Wanted the payday. So whatever the case may be. Now you fast forward from what we know, well, what we, we think we learned about him in that Netflix special. And you're right, finishing second at the Masters. I'll push back a little bit on the idea that it was validation of some sort. There had been live players who had played well the previous season in the Masters. If I remember correctly, there was a couple that finished inside the top 10 at the Masters the previous year, including Phil Mickelson. So I don't know, at least in my mind, if it needed validation. Maybe 
there are those who, including you, who did need it. I, I will say that this, in my mind, was more validation of Brooks Kepka that he was able to get through. And you and I spent a long, long time talking to Claude Harmon last year, getting through those injuries. And I don't know if we ever really plumbed the depths of exactly how difficult they were. And, and I will say, I find it interesting now that he has sort of come out the other side. And I made the argument that he should be on our ballot for the Golf Writers Association of America player of the year. I think you push back a little bit on that idea. I ran that no, idea. I like, I like the idea that he would have been the fourth player along with Victor. Yeah, yeah. Squarely, fourth. Squarely fourth. Uh, I, and I ran the idea by Brooks down at their tour championship in at Doral. And he sort of dismissed the idea for a lot of, for the reasons that you and I both did that I'm not going to get the vote. He kind of knew that he wasn't going to be the guy, but he kind of paused and he goes, come back player of the year. And I think that shows in his mind that he was able to overcome all of these things. And here is this, here's this guy who has this very carefully crafted image. He wants to be the athlete. He wants to be bigger, stronger, faster than everyone else. He wants to prove that he is indifferent to all of the things that make golfers fragile, that he, he doesn't get in his own head, that he just goes out and he's a machine on the golf course, particularly in major championships. And that wasn't the case. We learned that last year and he was able to sort of package those and improve himself to the point that you come out the other side and you get the second place finish at, at the masters. You get the victory at the PGA championship, you get two victories on live. You make the Ryder cup team in a very limited number of starts. All of those things are amazing. Yeah. There was certainly a, a window where we saw Brooks in a more vulnerable light. I, I do. I do think that window slammed shut as soon as he won the PGA championship. And all of a sudden he morphed back into uh, the Terminator mode. Who's kind of too cool for school. But I mean, this frat is boy? this. Would you call him a frat boy um, in, in ways. Yeah. Like he's okay. a, he's a, he's a South Florida bro. In a lot of ways, but I do think the PGA Championship victory, Rex, was a was a a, a testament to his to his grit, uh, to his perseverance, and certainly his talent. Like one of the most uh, one of the pieces I was most proud of this year was what I wrote coming out of the PGA Championship, where I talked to basically everyone in his inner circle and did vignettes on what it took to get Brooks, you know, away from the brink of extinction and back into major championship. Uh, form and it, it was everyone from his caddy to his trainer to his swing coach to kind of his swing whisperer uh pete cowan as well uh to his parents I, I mean it was a it was a full team effort and i think that's why we saw a different level of appreciation for brooks because he knew uh the hard work that it took to get to that point he knew uh, the support system that was around him uh that kind of pushed him uh back in this direction and uh, i i think he he slowed out a little bit for the rest of 2023. He was okay in the Ryder Cup. He did beat, beat Ludwig. Uh, he did steal a half point from Rom and what was an overall uh, a disappointing week for the Americans. Uh, I guess the, the question now, Rex, now that Brooks does seem healthy, now that he is competing full-time on live, now that he does have a major runway, which keep in mind, his major runway was about to run out uh, had he not performed well in the major championships in 2023. How many more majors do you think he can nab? He he thinks double digits uh, is still a possibility. He is thirty four with a body that is significantly older than that. What, what's your opinion? How much deeper can he get? This feels like the same conversation we always seem to have in recent years about Tiger Woods. Yeah, the talent is there, and he's proven he can win major championships. But as you pointed out, his body is not what it was ten years ago when he started this major championship run. Also, the level of competition. I would argue is only getting more and more difficult. When you look at the landscape now, it seems like there's so many players 25 and under 
who have the ability to, I mean, as you pointed out, your boy Obear, he hasn't even played in a major. And I think he's going to show up at the Masters as one of the favorites. And for good reason, because of what he's done in a very, very short window. You would think that Victor Hovland is poised to finally win a major championship. So I think double digits is probably on the high side. I'm definitely taking the under on that. That being said, I mean, I can imagine him not only winning multiple majors, but I can see him completing the career Grand Slam. Because in my mind, that's something that would motivate him. Yeah, like Open Championship links golf is is actually something that that appeals to Brooks. He doesn't have the greatest record uh, in the year's final major, uh, but I do think that he does have the skills to pull that off. I could see him winning one more U.S. Open. You know, he's such a perennial contender uh, when the golf gets its most difficult. We are headed to Pinehurst, of course, in 2024. I'll be curious to see if he has the short game shots to handle that revamped uh, golf course. But it, yeah, I think I think six, maybe seven. Uh, if he gets some help, I don't see him completing the career grand slam, uh, but I would not put another U.S. Open. I don't think it's uh, out of the realm of possibilities that he could win the Masters yeah. uh, as well. He's made a couple runs in his history at Augusta. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by AARP. 16 years from today, Greg Gerstner will finally land the perfect cannonball. Epic Splash. Unsuspecting friends. A work of art only possible because Greg is already meeting all these same people at AARP volunteer and community events that keep him active and involved and help make sure his happiness lives as long as he does. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org local. To national, all right, Rex. Uh, another guy who does not have the best history, at least you could call it a tortured history at Augusta National, is our number three newsmaker. That, of course, is Roy McElroy. So, his major less drought stretched now to a decade long. Uh, did give it a good run at the U.S. Open. I'm sure we'll dig in to that, but I think Roy was a newsmaker in 2023 as well because he kind of pushed back the idea and the position of being the leading spokesperson for the PJ tour. I, I guarantee if we listen back to our podcast a year ago with this year end recap, we would have been amazed at how Roy played the dual role of being the best PJ tour golfer and also being the most fervent supporter of the PJ tour and its ongoing civil war with live golf. That was no longer the case in 2023. He either, uh, he either stepped down from the policy board. He declined interview re requests. Uh, he just became a little bit more indifferent or detached from the process. We look at the totality of Roy's 2023, uh, a decade from now, how do you think it's going to be remembered? It was a year of transition because he had taken on a role that we've never really seen, at least in the modern game of golf. I guess you can go back to Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer when they actually created the PGA Tour. But anyone since then, even Tiger Woods, hadn't sort of taken on the mantle of sort of this agent of change, which is what he had really become and i will say he did walk away and i don't know if it's 
if it was by design. I don't know if he had enough. I think we had this conversation about when he stepped down from the policy board and someone asked me why. And I'm like, look at him. He looks exhausted. Like he looks like a guy who just had to sit through 12 hours of meetings that were going on on the other side of the world. And it's just not a sustainable model going forward, not for someone who wants to be a world-class golfer, not for someone who wants to be a world-class father and husband, not for someone who has so many other business interests right now that we know about. So I am fascinated by this idea of how he has morphed. And this is more, and I, I even hesitate to do this, but the way his the way his persona has changed, is, at least on social media, where he has gone from that day in Mexico when he said, I want to be on the right side of history. And he sort of became the shining white light for the PGA tour to where he seems to be now, where it's kind of split down the middle. I mean, I think some people look at what he did and what he tried to do as maybe self-serving as maybe he was only worried about the top players as if, as if he was only worried about himself. I don't believe that. I don't think that was his motivation here. I, I think he truly wanted what was best for the PGA tour in the game of golf. I think June 6th changed all that for him. I think for most of us, I think June 6th changed how we viewed at least the professional game, but for him, it was personal. And you can look at what he did on the golf course. And it, it wasn't a terrible year. I mean, you look, I mean, he would, seems like he was in the hunt almost every week he played. He only picked off a couple of victories, only two on the PGA Tour. But it, it, it's what happened off the golf course. And you're right. He had never, I had always been, we have a Golf Writers Association award that essentially goes to the player who's the most media friendly. And I have fought with our friend and colleague, Doug uh, Ferguson at the Associated Press for years now, probably five years be like mm, it's time for Rory to get it because he's always been accommodating he's always been welcoming he's always been insightful all of the things we're trying to recognize and appreciate in players and and Fergie always pushed back to be fair because he felt like it was too early he was too young this year we didn't get that that Rory and I think it was a self it was a defense mechanism particularly after June 6 where what was he supposed to say like what am I supposed to say about this I like I have he clearly has strong feelings about it. But now I've been put in a position where I have to toe the company line and try to say the right thing, even if I don't believe it. I think for Rory off the golf course, it was a much more difficult year than it was on the golf course. I, I think Rory just became powerless. He, he just, he just felt powerless. Like this was, this was happening with or without his support. So why, why not just what's going on in, in the Labner household? You have the leaf blower in the house. Is that what's happening right now? It, it feels like it. It certainly feels like it. Not an ideal time uh, for uh, the the the, uh, uh, the mowers, the mowers, and the blowers to come out here at eight fifty four a.m. Uh, on a Wednesday. Uh, but I, I, like Rory, this was happening regardless, whether Rory supported it, whether Rory hated it, whether Rory didn't want to partner with the with the PIF, uh, whether he didn't want private equity money. Like this, this was happening. So why not dive headlong into your professional game? Why not be the selfish golfer that you need to be to reach the heights again? Why? Why distract yourself from what you do best with something that you cannot change the outcome? You can, you can, you can give a push in what you'd like to see, but that doesn't necessarily mean what you want to have happen is going to. Roy, to me, Rex has never been more fascinating to cover because the 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 encore stuff, like we've seen it now for for more than a decade, we know exactly what we're going to get on the golf course. He's likely going to win a couple times a year. He's likely going to contend in a major championship, but there's just so many little melodramas that happen throughout the course of the year. Remember him missing the cut at the masters and then forfeiting, what was it like $3 million because he skipped the RBC heritage. We've uh, prattled on for five minutes after. and haven't mentioned the Ryder cup. <laughs> that's, 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 that's where I'm getting. So you had, you had where he forfeits 
$3 million, basically said he just needed like a mental health break. Uh, you get what happened in June 6th, where he said in, in Canada a couple of days later where he felt like a sacrificial lamb at times and was put on stage and then made to look like an embarrassment. And then we get to the Ryder Cup and the hat cake, the, the uh, endless drama that was Saturday afternoon with that Patrick Cantlay match and the wave in the hats and the explosion with Joe LaCava that spilled into the parking lot, which I'm sure was one of your highlights of the year. It's always something with Rory and it doesn't always have to do with birdies and bogeys. That's why to me, he's the most fascinating player to write about the most fascinating player to cover and the most fascinating player to watch on the PGA tour. And in any other universe, he's number one on this list. Now, granted we're in a weird times, but so I understand and I agree with where he fell on this list, but in any other universe, what he did this year, I hadn't even thought about him. That, that forfeiting $3 million seems like a lifetime ago, but we, we prodded on for five minutes and never got to probably what, was if we break it down, if, if our bosses break it down like they like to do by clicks, that had to be the most clicked on story of the year. No, I mean, what I if I remember correctly from the meetings a few weeks ago, you, that was the number one blog, right? You wrote that. Uh, I did. Yep. Tipped off by you, of course, uh, who's standing in the parking lot watching the whole thing go down. I remember running. We just finished. I believe it was either the American or the European captain's press conference. And it was probably what a 200 yard walk get back to the media center. I got a phone call from you panicked saying that Roy just got in a fight. And I remember sprinting past our buddy, Sean Martin, uh, who works for PJ tour.com. He goes, wait, what's going on? I said, don't you worry about it. Go to golfchannel.com. Uh, and, and we did have, we did have the post up before anyone else, which is probably a main reason why it was our leading click getter of the year. But like, that was just such, that could only happen in the Ryder cup, right? Like that would never happen that would never happen at the Wells Fargo Championship RIP. That would never happen at a U.S. Open. Like only in the Ryder Cup, when the, when the emotions are so high, could Rory just absolutely blow a gasket. And I thought that was a window into how Rory was performing and thinking that week. And I also think it helped to galvanize the European side. You had this tidal wave of momentum for the Americans on what happened late Saturday Heading into Sunday, it would have been a historic comeback, but at least now the Americans thought they had a chance. Rory's explosion, I think, served a couple of purposes, and it ended up being uh, another route for the Europeans. Uh, and so that was obviously a huge moment in 2023 and certainly something uh, that I'm sure you will be remembering as well. All right. Our number two newsmaker, if it's not Rory, that could only be the GWA Player of the Year for 2023, who is... Yes, the Masters champion, John Rahm. He won four times, I believe, in a 10-week span in the spring, culminating with the Masters and what was unfortunately another Sunday final round snooze at the Masters. Hopefully we don't get that in 2024. But I think perhaps even more impactful, Rex, actually definitely more impactful. He will not be on the PJ Tour. John Rahm will, will not be on the PJ Tour next year after jumping to live in a monster deal worth reportedly Upwards of $600 million. John Rahm, live defector. How do you think this will impact his legacy? Two things in that opening that were journalistically wildly irresponsible. One, you're quoting some source of $600 million. million and Reportedly. I've heard everything from $200 million to $600 million. So that's a really, really big win. That's why I so said he, upwards. 
let's just say he got a lot of money. I, I feel that's where I feel comfortable drawing the line. The other half is the GWA play, male player of the year has not been announced. It will be John Rom. Thank you for breaking that news on our podcast. I believe it'll be announced later this week, but good for you for, for getting that inside scoop. That's amazing that you were able to pull that off. Let's hope that doesn't come back to uh, haunt one of the board members or two of the board members on that front. He, he got it. Um, and, and it was interesting that the PGA tour player of the year vote has not come down yet. And of course he was on that ballot and that ballot was sent out before he joined live golf. It, it was actually sent out before the rumors started. So I'm curious how that one's going to fall. It was in the, such a- in, the, in the voting, the voting recs closed on December 15th, Yeah, which I believe was three or four days after the John Rum live deal was announced. So we're going to have to see it. I mean, it would be shocking if John Rom won the PJ tour player of the year. I, I I'm fully expecting that goes to Scotty. Uh, but I guess we'll I don't know. stay tuned. I, guess I don't know. I mean, we, we've talked about this before. It was funny at East Lake at the tour championship. I kind of pulled players like I normally do on who they think it was going to be. And, and everyone recognized John Rom's season for what it is. It was a dominant season Four wins, a major championship, um, everything that he was able to accomplish. Certainly it, we don't factor the Ryder cup into the PGA tour player of the year conversation, but it needs to be in that conversation. I think there were a couple things that sort of held him back compared to Scotty Scheffler. Cause let's, it came down to those two. One is the fact that John didn't win Apple uh, after the masters in April that he contended he had a fine season, but all four of those wins came very, very early in the year. And the other half is that he did join live golf that in by certain degree this is a popularity contest we've seen it in the past i think it we telling when these players place their votes and my guess is most tour players being who they are being the type of personalities they are they wait until the last minute like the rest of us so it would have been in that three-day window after he was announced as live golf's newest uh, signee so that i think is going to impact it i i find john interesting because in and look it's easy to go back and to say, you know, you, you pledged your fealty. Crushed yeah. it. Crushed yeah, it. Crushed fealty. It. Although leaking confidence the whole way. There, there was no, fealty? there was nothing. I'm, I'm Rex Hoggard. I'm Rex Hoggard. Uh, even though he was on that side, he is, as Roy would say. And to, to make that turn, I can only imagine that when the book is written about what sort of got this deal done. And, and we've addressed it like this was one of the greatest leverage moves in the history of leverage moves that the PIF and its governor were able to sign John Rom at just the perfect time to make sure that the PGA tour stayed at the table and negotiated in good faith towards whatever agreement they're going to come at. It's, it's such a shrewd and savvy business thing to do. And look, we can all sit and shake our heads and say, you know, Oh, we went back on his word. Well, I mean, we all got a number and I've made the argument all along that all of us have a number in the back of our heads. And apparently John Rom's number, they finally got to. Because that's the only explanation, whatever that big number is. And I'm no, like, I don't. I don't think that's the case. It's not just that that he had a number. I think it's the fact that John Rom went back on his word because the PJ Tour went back. Maybe that, that factors word. into this. To be fair, Absolutely. I mean, if if he felt betrayed by the PJ Tour leadership, as basically every player on the PJ Tour did, it's hard to fault a guy who pledged his fealty in February 2022 when the when the goalposts had moved so dramatically by the time June 2023 rolled around. That's fair. That That's 100% fair. And look, I, we can sit here and have this argument about how his signing hurt the PGA Tour. Obviously, the timing of the negotiations was huge. I think it said a very, very clear message that this isn't going away anytime soon to get that particular player. Because it's one thing, they, they probably weren't going to get Scotty Scheffler. So we can go down the list 
and we can start deciding, okay, who would have gone and who wouldn't have gone in that situation. John Rahm going, I, I think, was such a seminal moment, and it was really the, the tipping point. And whatever it is we're going to be going forward, we're going to point to that day that John Rahm announced it, that, that frenzy, I believe it was a Thursday, and, and be like, yep, that, that's the day that everything changed. Because you're right, June 6th was an eye-opening experience, and we're going get, to get into that. But to me, I can't understate how big this was because he had been – such a large part, large part of the process. Go back to the Delaware meeting two years ago. I mean, he was a voice, a big voice in that room. I would say after Rory and Tiger, he's he was probably the biggest voice in that room. And for him to go under those circumstances was huge. I, I just, I think it's ironic that that John Rom, and I'm I'm in total agreement with you that he's going to be kind of the game changer in the negotiations. And as we sit here on December 26th, we don't have uh, finality when it comes to what that deal is going to look like, but it, it's of my belief that he will be the game changer. And that's ironic because John Rahm had kind of positioned himself as apolitical about the whole thing. He was on the PGA tour. He had pledged his fealty to the PGA tour, but he didn't denounce Phil Mickelson. He still maintained kind of admiration and friendship with Sergio Garcia. He was still stumping for Sergio to be a part of that European Ryder Cup team. He was kind of playing both sides, but he was doing so, playing I think, respect, sides. but I think, I think respectfully uh, and, and with, with equal admiration for even those who had left and had made personal decisions to do so. To answer my own question, no, I don't think John Rahm's legacy will actually be affected all that much. I remember Brandel Chambly the night that news came out, like Brandel said that, that John Rahm sold his career. I don't, I sold out his career. I don't believe that'll actually be the case. If you're reading the tea leaves and there is potentially going to be some sort of merger with the PJ tour and live golf, uh, perhaps as soon as 2025, this could basically be a one year hiatus. John Rahm from the PJ tour get, gets paid a boatload of money, uh, helps position the PJ tour uh, in, a, in an entirely uh, different position. He gets paid uh, and, in he's still in the major championships. Like it, 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 it should be, it should be a non-factor. Now I think the skeptics and the cynics will be quick to point out any sort of dip in performance when it comes to John Rom in 2024. Keep in mind, he played eight or nine times before his master's victory this year. Live golf schedule uh, has just five events ahead of the year's first major. Two of those require extensive travel uh, to, uh, uh, to, to Asia and Saudi Arabia as well. So we're very curious to see how the GWA player of the year uh, has a repeat performance in 2024. Uh, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. And to your point, I mean, can you imagine if we do have some sort of agreement that begins, I don't know, 2025 seems early, but 2026 where it was a one year rental essentially. And they, whatever the number is, I'm not going to be journalistically reckless here, but whatever the number was, it was probably worth live golf to get him for that one year rental. And then just to turn things around on that front, you're right. Going forward, I mean, he is a particular kind of player who likes a particular kind of rhythm. And I will go back to the idea that I remember, I think you're the one that asked the question when we were going into last year's designated event schedule and the East Lake before the tour championship before it was kind of ran by him that, oh, well, you, you have to play in these events now and him sort of pushing back. He was one of the only top players who didn't like the idea. Like, I don't want to be told where to play. Now he's put himself in a position where He's going to play these 14 weeks plus the four majors, and there's not going to be any way around it. He doesn't strike me as a type of person that's going to enjoy that type of lifestyle, but we're going to have to see. That was Evan Priest of Golf. 
Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by AARP. 16 years from today, Greg Gerstner will finally land the perfect cannonball. Epic Splash. Unsuspecting friends. A work of art only possible because Greg is already meeting all these same people at AARP volunteer and community events that keep him active and involved and help make sure his happiness lives as long as he does. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org local. Digest. My husband bitten off by John Rahm in the past. Uh, that was not uh, one in which he did so. All right. You can probably guess what our number one newsmaker of the year is going to be. It's a package deal. Jay Monahan, in particular, is a top newsmaker of the year. But the top newsmaking moment, I guess you could say, is June 6th, the day the PJ Tour changed forever. The secret deal with the Saudis to end a lawsuit, which both sides clearly wanted. But Rex, to me at least, this wasn't so much an error in execution as it was in the messaging. The PJ Tour and whoever else was consulting them, bungled the messaging so badly that no one was sure whether this was just a handshake, whether this was a partnership, whether this was an all-out merger. So what was the impact first, Rex, of how you think this all came out on June 6th in particular? I think it's both, actually, to go back to your original question. It, it, it was a bungling of, of the way it was rolled out, and it was a bungling of sort of how you handle just PR 101. I remember our colleague at ESPN, Mark Schleyball, actually had something along the lines of, you know, PGA Tour Live Golf merge. And, and there was hundreds, if not thousands of these headlines. And the PGA Tour pushed back on him saying, it's not a merger. Like, can you please fix this? And his point was, if you look at the release you sent out, it actually says merger in your own headline. So, yes, to, to both of those questions, it was terribly rolled out. It was terribly thought out. I mean, now that in retrospect that you look at what transpired, you get an idea of how hurried and how desperate this really was when you sort of break it down. And I did this the other day I did, for easy reading. I still go back to that document and just sort of check on some things. And I was looking back at sort of whatever the wording was on the deadline, which is, as I mentioned earlier, December 31st, it was a really soft deadline. And there was parts in there about no, not poaching each other's players. Well, that got stricken from the record because the department of justice didn't like it. So they took it out. There's plenty of things in there that I think, and, and now that we've sort of seen the inner workings of it, it was a living, breathing document for weeks leading up to this announcement. In defense, did you put just put a sausage finger up? Because I, God, I, I, I think Rex, had this announcement been put in a press release where PJ Tour and PIF rescind lawsuits, comma, will work, will will collaborate toward future project. Something along those lines, I think the entire fallout would be would be entirely different. 
you know what I mean? Like the PGA tour players, they have to have seen the documents that, that were shared internally of how much this is going to cost Maybe. and what the, what the impact is going to be. I don't think anyone would disagree with the notion that both sides needed to end the lawsuits. And then if you say, Hey, we, we will potentially collaborate on future project. Okay. That makes sense. These guys are, are willing to pour billions with a B billions of dollars into the game of golf. How can this, help support the PJ tour. Yeah. Maybe there is something that we can do with team golf, like any sort of collaboration I think needed to be in that press release. Instead, it's a merger. It's a partnership. How can you be partnering with the, with the Saudis when you're just bad mouthing them for two years? Like that was what kind of caused the atomic bomb to go off. It, instead, it, it literally just a headline change or just a nut graph change could have, could have made this whole thing different. And in fairness, and I know this because I talked to someone in Ponte Vedra Tour headquarters the day it happened. And June 6th at 9 a.m. is when senior management found out about it. So that's not even the people who are rung below that actually would have been writing the press release an hour before the announcement was rolled out. So it's not as though the folks and and there's been a lot of people in Ponte Vedra who've gotten called out on this. I don't know. I don't pretend to understand how to do that job. But I do know that trying to do that job, given just 60 minutes before it's rolled out, before CNBC essentially announces it with Jay Monahan and the governor of the public investment fund sitting next to each other. It, it, there was, it was never going to be seamless. And again, there will be classes held on how this was handled poorly. I don't know if you, if it's fair to dump it on the PGA tours management shoulders, because I'm not quite sure if they saw it coming. And even if they did, how they could have handled it better. You're right. There's a, there's a ton of ways you could have written around it. I, I'll go back to just the general idea of this was the PGA Tours, I believe it was Jimmy Dunn, a member of the policy board, who said that this was their best chance to get any kind of deal whatsoever. They were at the height of whatever their negotiating power was going to be. And this was going to make the lawsuit go away. And as you pointed out, both sides were highly motivated to make that go away. And they needed to come up with some sort of way to get to a point that maybe there can be some sort of strategic alliance. And I'm not quite sure if that's a given, even at this point. This far down the road, I feel like some sort of alliance with the PIF is not only likely, but necessary for the PGA Tour going forward. But I'm not going to be surprised if between today, the 27th, and a few days from now, the 31st, that we do get some sort of update and saying that things didn't work out. Like, that's not going to shock me because the sides are too far apart. And this transitions to the other half of the slash. It's June 6th slash Jay Monahan. I don't know, and I'm, I'm so bad at this, and I've been very, very clear. Everyone, I, I've gotten a bunch of texts actually over the last few weeks about this, and I don't know why. Everyone who wants to fire Jay Monahan, and it's really, really easy to do that to a commissioner of, of a league. I mean, Roger Goodell gets fired all the time. I understand that's the way it works. I'm not comfortable firing someone. My only comment in all of this is I don't know how Jay sits in a room, in a boardroom, where major decisions are being made across the table from the governor of the public investment fund after everything he said. I don't know how you can have negotiations in good faith. I don't know how you can have some sort of working relationship. You and I have said some mean things to each other, but we've never really said these types of mean things to each other. I can only imagine how difficult that is for two people who clearly don't like each other to try to collaborate and work together in some sort of uh, constructive way. I'm not ready to fire Jay Monahan either i think he deserves uh the benefit of the doubt to be able to see this deal through like if that makes sense and i think the, sure. the most likely scenario here is that jay monahan becomes kind of like a martyr you know like once the deal goes through if the deal goes through 
and he gets the the PJ Tour to a point of profitability that it never has before. That's where I think he could step aside and let someone else lead this new PGA Tour entity. Whatever trust the players had in him previously has obviously been lost to the point that it's hard to imagine he could ever regain it again, even with all the governance changes that have been put forth by the PGA Tour to ensure it doesn't happen again. It's hard to see how that relationship can ever be mended. I do think his legacy could look a whole lot different if this deal goes through with the Saudis, if the whole entire PGA goes through it, it's a good deal. If we're yes. not sitting here five years from now, like feeling like the ACC and ESPN deal, like if it's a good deal going forward, yes, you're right. Yeah. If, if you're getting $3 billion, say from a private equity firm and you're getting uh, an additional uh, surplus of money from the PIF and the PGA tour is in a spot now where potentially they can even go out and snag other entities that they could put the PGA, PGA championship under uh, its purview. They could put the European Ryder cup team under his pure purview, whatever the case may be, if the PGA Tour could create this worldwide schedule with 25 events of the best players in the world playing every uh, single week together, like that would be a compelling product in addition to some sort of team golf aspect. Like there is still a the, the potential that Jay Monahan can come out of this deal looking very good legacy-wise, right? He's obviously in the middle of a firestorm right now where, where, where players don't like him, players don't trust him, sponsors are furious, uh, 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 tournament directors aren't happy about what's happening to their tournaments. Like there is a lot swirling around Jay Monahan, but if he can get a good deal done, I think history will view him very differently as the, as, as the person in charge who altered the history of the PGA tour. And it's just not players not liking him. You have both sides of the, and there is a player divide on the PGA tour. That's another conversation for another day, but the top players don't trust him in the bottom half of the field. Don't trust him. So that's a problem. It was one thing when you had the top players on your side, because clearly the tour is leaning towards this, you know, we're, we're just going to do the top one third of the tour. These are the guys that matter. These are the guys who are going to get the resources that I understand completely, but it's both sides that have this lack of trust right now. I, I don't know what it looks like going forward. And you're right. If he can orchestrate some sort of deal. And I think the news from last week that the group led by Fenway sports is going to be a partner of some sort. I think that's going to help Jay. Let's be honest. He essentially came from Fenway Sports when he came to the PGA Tour. So there are some allies on that front, but it will. It remains to be seen how the players are going to view whatever the final product is going to be. What do you think the potential of the PGA Tour is in 2024? I, I remember uh, at the beginning of the year, I said there would be less divisiveness on the PJ Tour, I thought there were two different alleyways. The PJ Tour would do their own thing. Live Golf would do their own thing. It looked good for about five and a half months, and then it all crumbled. And now there's divisiveness and contentiousness literally uh, seeping out of the PJ Tour's very pores. What do you think 2024 brings for Jay Monahan and the PJ Tour in its entirety? Uh, more up upheaval, I think, in the short term. I think next year is going to be more of the same, simply because even if there is an agreement over the next few days and they come up with some sort of model at that point, that's just another piece of paper. Like this document I keep referring back to, which was the framework agreement from that piece of paper. Then you have to actually have to make all of these things fit into place. You mentioned a, some sort of world tour schedule. What exactly that's going to look like. You need to find a way to get those players who join live. If they want to come back to the PGA tour back integrated into the PGA tour, you need to find a way to make the players who stayed, who remained whole again. Like it, we've got some general ideas, but they're just sort of, they're in that gray area 
right now. Like they're talking about equity grants for players who stay loyal. Sure. How do you do that? Like, what does that look like? And if Roy McIlroy is getting X number of equity grants in the PGA tour, how many is Tiger getting? How many is Jack Nicholas getting? Like there's so many questions I see in the short term and maybe that's six months that maybe that's the next year. It's just going to be more upheaval. We've gone through two years of this. We went from moving to a designated schedule where everything changed to this year, moving to a signature event, single calendar schedule where everything has changed. And I would imagine more of the same going into 25, 26, 27, 28. I, I think so too. Like there's so much, so many fine details that need to be hashed out just when it comes to the potential partnership with the PIF. That doesn't even mention like the new PJ tour schedule and the FedEx cup point structure and how that could potentially alter the careers and livelihoods of these guys. Like it actually could get, it actually could get worse before it gets better for the PG tour. One thing is for sure. It will give us plenty to write and talk about in 2024. I'm hoping Rex that we do not have to do an emergency podcast before the end of you the want year. to be there's done. Certainly, there's potential that we could, I do not think we would have an emergency podcast if they, if they, if they announced that they're merely extending the deadline, we could probably save that uh, for next week's podcast for previewing the century. Uh, but I think any sort of announced deal would certainly be cause for emergency pods. Make sure you guys are on the lookout for that. Rex, if we don't have emergency pod, this will be the last time that you and I speak on the podcast before the calendar turns to 2024. What do you have on the grill, on the menu, on tap for the rest of 2023? Uh, I've gotten very bold, by the way, yesterday I cooked breakfast on the Blackstone again for my uh, oldest son's birthday, and it was divine. It was very good. Very unhealthy. What'd you do? What'd you do? Uh, just very, very basic. It was, well, I don't think you don't do corned beef hash, do you? No, I asked I asked what that was on the right side of your griddle. Never got back to me. Thanks for that. Oh. Uh, but no, I, I don't I don't dislike corned beef hash, but I've certainly never done it on the griddle. It's a very distinct way. And my youngest son, Luke, actually gave me the, how you, like I didn't really, I, I've done it camping before, but I'd never done it in this thing. I mean, what you essentially do is you lay it all out, you kind of flatten it down and you let it cook to a crunch on one side. And then you have to flip it perfectly and cook to a crunch on the other side. Worked out well. And then just basic eggs and bacon. And it was delicious because there was nothing better than cooking everything in bacon grease. But dear God, that's not healthy. It, it really is like the best hangover food if you if you if you drank too much on christmas eve if you drank too much on christmas and you're doing this on the 26th like or you do or new year's eve now coming up and on new year's day like it is the absolute best thing to do where i i did similar to corned beef hash like i we did the hash browns and so you you know you you, you drop it on there you press it flat you get it crunchy you flip it over the, the tricky part is to get the outside crunchy while keeping it still kind of warm and soft in the middle, there's a very uh, delicate balance there where you could dry it out very quickly. Shove that to the side, put the bacon down, and everything's just cooking in the bacon grease. You throw the eggs in there, and like they're the best eggs you could possibly have. It's soaking up uh, absolutely everything that you have in your stomach that should not be there. Are you doing anything special for New Year's Eve or New Year's Day? I got. I had to get a, a tire on my son's car, and so we decided to go to Costco uh, under the idea that well, yeah. Uh, and I don't want to speak ill about Costco because I don't want to offend any potential sponsors. Did not work out as well as I thought it was going to be. So I ended up essentially having to spend three hours just wandering around Costco, which probably is not the best thing to do. Anyway, after walking by it about 10 times, I finally brought a bought a brisket and I'm going to. Oh, yes. oh, my God. Oh, wow. That. Yes. Wow. That really uh, that really escalated quickly because I, too, Rex, I, too, bought a brisket 
at Costco a couple of days ago. I was searching for a beef tenderloin that we enjoyed on Christmas Day. First time I've bought uh, and cooked one of those. My goodness. That was the most nerve-wracked uh, I've ever been while cooking a cut of meat. $117 for a beef tenderloin. How do uh, people do this? How do yeah. people do this? Yeah, it's pretty expensive. And, and you uh, can mess it up really easy. Uh, we, and actually, my wife... Pretty- we do it for Christmas Eve dinner. I didn't. I did. We have Christmas Eve dinner at my sister-in-law's, and we do that. But my wife and my mother-in-law do it, and it's a very in-depth process. Uh, it is. I smoked it and then seared it uh, over the firebox. Actually, it came out great. Uh, wife said it was the best beef tenderloin she's ever had. I don't think she was just trying to make me feel good. But when I was at Costco buying the beef tenderloin, I saw prime briskets on like a mega sale. Yeah, at Costco. So I bought a prime brisket for like $40, which is insane. I was on yeah. the smaller side. I'm a little worried about that. When you buy briskets, you tend to want to get bigger. And then obviously, you would be you do be doing a pretty heavy trim on that to make sure that it's as much of a usable brisket as well. It probably won't cook as well as it could. If it was kind of a 15 14 pounder, I believe it's like a nine pounder. So by the time you trim it, you're probably looking at about a seven pounder. Uh, I've got it in the freezer right now. I don't think obviously that will thaw in time to do on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, but I do have it in the hopper eventually. Right now, I've got a prime rib that is thawing in the fridge. I'll be doing that one for New Year's Day. On New Year's Eve, we'll be going to the Jags game, uh, the free-falling Jags, trying to squander not just the division lead, but a playoff berth playoff as well. Spot. Thankfully, they play the worst the, the worst team in the NFL, the Carolina Panthers at home on Sunday. We go into that one. And uh, Rex, we, we've, we have failed to mention, at least to this point, the stakes that we do have for Saturday's game between Georgia and Florida State, of which you are a fan. I'm not sure if Florida State actually has enough players uh, to field for the active roster. Not feeling good about it. A number of either transfers, opt-outs, players who are saving themselves for the NFL draft, at least on the Seminole side, is unbelievable. Georgia's going to be without Brock Bowers as well as Ararius Mims. Uh, on the offensive line, both guys uh, figure to go in the top 10 of the NFL draft. And so they're saving themselves for that. Uh, no problem with that uh, from my perspective, but we do have some stakes. What are they? And have you already made the purchase? Uh, I have not made the purchase. I think there's got, well, I, I was, I was assuming you were going to talk fantasy uh, football here uh, just because we're at the end of the season. And I did lose in the first round of the playoffs. Uh, and I just want to point this out. I lost in the first round of playoffs by less than one point. And it's a two week, game so it was 203.1 to 202.54 you know the difference in that what what it could have been and i'm just throwing this out there the difference of that could have been had you not talked me into taking an offense last week that got me negative five points had they just got i don't know negative four points i would have won like i don't think that's asking much just don't go in the whole five points just go in the whole four points if it makes you feel if it makes you feel any better uh playing your son in the consolation bracket bracket i would have beat you by 85 points you did wax him over these two weeks uh, just a humiliating and embarrassing week for the hoggard since you did not address the orange bowl bet that you and i have uh um, viewers of the hero world challenge remember that you were wearing a band-aid above the cancer spot above your right eye mm-hmm. uh, it's not actually a cancer spot uh, it did come back benign. benign there is no trouble there however when you're out in the sun uh, your dermatologist is advising you to wear a Band-Aid. And so when you do, for your next live hit or potentially on this here podcast video, you will be wearing for the entirety of the video a Georgia Bulldog Band-Aid. Viewers are going to get up close and personal to your face. 
as we gloat and celebrate, which should be. I think George is like a 17-point favorite at this point after all the transfers. After We're all doing a straight opt-out. win or do I get the points? No, you're definitely not getting the points. We're doing a straight win head-to-head. This is the fifth-ranked, of course, fifth-ranked Florida State Seminoles over the sixth-ranked Georgia Bulldogs. Somehow Georgia dropped from one to six, and somehow Georgia was dropped behind Florida State in the six-hole despite being, as I mentioned, Yes, the Bulldogs are victims here. I understand. Point. Sure. Yeah. Uh, favorite, that'll be on Saturday at 4 o'clock. Actually, a great day of football on Saturday, for being honest. Uh, Ole Miss, Penn State at noon. Georgia, Florida State, where we have our high stakes. And then Dallas, Detroit on Saturday evening. We'll be having a party. Got a bounce house for the kids for Christmas. I think I'll be doing some ribs as well for a little bit of a get-together. All right. You think we'll be busy on Saturday, December 30th? No? Just football? You think all we have is football and cooking and friends and, and beer? If the PGA Tour waits until December 30th to announce this, I'm not going to be happy. Also, early, happy early birthday to Tiger Woods. He turns 48 years oh, yeah. young on December 30th as well. All right. That's going to do it for this edition of the Golf Channel Podcast with Rex and Lav. Hopefully, we'll be back next week. The 2024 kickoff podcast will be previewing the century and recapping any other news that may have happened over the next six days. Thank you guys so much for listening, for watching, for commenting, for tweeting us all throughout 2023. We do appreciate the support. Hopefully we'll be bringing you uh, even better content in the year ahead. We'll be trying to maximize our social profiles and give you guys exactly what you're looking for in these modern times. We do appreciate the support. Hope you have a great new year. We'll talk to you next week. Happy new year. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.